This week on WealthTrack, it's time for our annual outlook with Wall Street's long-reigning king of economists, Ed Hyman, and world-class portfolio manager, Matthew McLennan. This week's focus is the U.S., recovery or recession, bull or bear market. We'll have answers next on Consuelo Mack WealthTrack. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, a Leg Mason company, Miller Value Funds, Royce and Associates, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, Strategus Asset Management, and Eaton Vance. Hello and welcome to this special edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. I say special because every year at this time, we are delighted to welcome Wall Street's long-reigning number one economist, Ed Hyman, to share his outlook with us. And we always pair him with a leading portfolio manager and financial thought leader with a global investment view. So for the fourth year in a row, our choice is First Eagle's Matthew McLennan. Ed Hyman is a Wall Street legend. Vice Chairman of Evercore, a leading independent investment banking and advisory firm, Hyman is the founder and chairman of its Evercore ISI division and leads its economic research team. He has been voted Wall Street's number one economist for an unprecedented 39 years in Institutional Investors' annual survey. No one else comes even close to that record. Matthew McLennan, a noted global value manager, is head of the global value team at First Eagle Investment Management, where he oversees more than $90 billion in assets, including several funds. His flagship First Eagle Global Fund, which he inherited from legendary value investor Jean-Marie Ebillard in 2008, carries Morningstar's five-star and bronze medalist ratings and has outperformed both its world stock index and world allocation category since its 1979 inception. First Eagle is a recent sponsor of WealthTrack, but Evayard and McLennan have been WealthTrack guests for years because of their track records and professional standing. In the first of this two-part series on the outlook for 2020, our focus is on the U.S. Last year, Hyman correctly forecast the now record-breaking economic recovery would continue and that a recession was several years away. I asked him what his view is now. Pretty much the same. So let's look at what is the basis for that. So one, uh, particularly back then, is that policy is pro-growth. It had just switched back. It had been anti-growth in the fourth quarter of 18. Right. Uh, and then it Because turned, the Fed was, had raised interest rates. Had raised, raised rates. Right. Anyway, it became pro, pro-growth. And it still is pro-growth. And it's actually, if anything, it's getting more pro-growth because now you have some fiscal stimulus. And then there's no inflation, which is the sister to central banks you know, being stimulative. And there's no particular bubble, uh, or like not, not, not a bubble like the tech bubble or right. the housing bubble. Uh, so it looks like it could go on for a while. And more and more people are looking at Matt's uh, home country of Australia where <laughs> <laughs> they've had 28 years of expansion. Uh, so it looks like it looks like we can have this discussion a year from now anyway. And, right. Let me ask you about it, because you were talking about Australia. 
and and we're going to focus on the U.S. But but you know why is it that we are having this experience when you have unemployment is you know kind of at close to record lows, and so this whole notion of full employment and that therefore wages should be going up is contrary to what our expectations and experience have been in the post World War II period. Why is it happening? What's well, different? It's certainly different than what I expected. Yes, uh, but it looks as though. I say that looks because maybe things are different than they appear. It looks as though wages still aren't going up. Right. Uh, and that's for a variety of reasons. One is technology, you know, keeps downward pressure uh, on labor. And then so many industries are so competitive. The financial services business, the entertainment business, the auto business. And so even though the economy is doing very well, uh, so far, knock on wood, wages haven't accelerated. Right. And that sort of keeps the thing on an endless summer uh, pattern. Matt, let's talk about the endless summer pattern. <laughs> um, the, you have been very critical of central bank policies and which we've had this unprecedented monetary expansion. Um, it certainly seems to be doing some good possibly for the economy. Uh, why, do you, why do you think it's, it's a problem? Well, if, if I'm looking at the economy today, I always start bottom up and, and you get interesting signals there. I think right. uh, I can relate that back to monetary policy because if we look at the last uh, 12 months or so and you look at what performed and what didn't perform bottom up, um, companies that were associated with the older industrial economy uh, were laggards, you know, whether you're in uh, the industry or transportation. And then um, we saw as well companies that were going through uh, transit or late to transition, if you will, whether it was to the cloud or mm -hmm. to uh, in the energy patch, uh, were also penalized this year. But things that did well were the new economy uh, companies. And I, I recall Ed speaking about that uh, last year. Right. Salesforce was his one investment recommendation that, last year. Right. That, that's right. And uh, but interestingly enough, we also saw defensive uh, companies doing well, particularly uh, in the gold sector. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what happened this year, I think the phase shift was this move down in real interest rates, which as Ed suggested before, was uh, stimulative for growth expectations, um, but also for defensive assets. And so it's an unusual year in that regard. And I think we saw a major shift in Fed policy this mm -hmm. year. Uh, we Back to easing. Back to easing, but even right. more in mental model terms, uh, they've talked about inflation averaging rather than inflation targeting. And that's opened up the possibility that rates could be lower for longer, that we may actually uh, experiment with periods of a little bit higher inflation uh, until long-term inflation expectations are meaningfully higher. And so there is an experimental shift that's gone on in mm -hmm. policy here um, that the markets have priced initially favorably, um, but it does raise some provocative questions as we think longer term. The market has responded po positively. I mean, the, the bull market has continued. Is, I mean, are you seeing any signs of, you know, what Ed was talking about, I mean, of bubbles? I mean, are there, are there signs of extreme overvaluation? Well, in, in short, we saw some healthy developments this year. I mean, we saw some cash flow negative concept stocks not come to market. I'm thinking of the likes of WeWork and, and, mm -hmm. and the like. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's actually a healthy uh, development. But having said that, the last time we had this pattern uh, of sustained underperformance for uh, older economy stocks versus the new economy uh, in the late 90s and before that in the late 80s uh, preceded uh, the inversion of the yield curve. And we saw this last year, the yield curve in invert. And I think right. uh, all of those episodes uh, were followed by weakness in payrolls and, and, and ultimately um, more uncertainty in markets, wider credit spreads, lower P multiples. That hasn't happened this time. And I think part of the reason for that is the shift 
to, to low real interest rates. Uh, the Fed took away the punch ball uh, at the end of those two periods. This time the Fed has been more accommodative, so it is experimental. It is unusual this far into an economic expansion to have both easy monetary policy and easy fiscal policy. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, in your research at ISI, you have identified three what you call mini-recessions. And what are the many recessions that you've identified that have occurred during this, you know, this economic recovery that has broken records for longevity? So I'm not sure why they've occurred, but you had uh, a significant slowdown in the economy in 2012 when Europe blew up. Uh, Greece was on the verge of uh, defaulting. And then in 2012, 2016, second episode, uh, China came down, oil came down. Uh, and then in this last episode, uh, the Fed tightened. Uh, and so it, in, that was in 2018. 2018, right. and you had the, t- uh, the tariff uh, trade war start up. Right. And the economy has now had a third mini-recession, which we're in now. Mm-hmm. And we'll see if we'll, time will tell whether or not we're, we have an outright recession or this reverses. But this, so those are the three. And it looks as though uh, they are helping the economy uh, go longer because right. you have these periods where you slow down and rest and then pick up again and that's extending the cycle uh, so the expansion is uh, chronologically old mm-hmm. uh, but uh, from a business cycle point of view i think it's sort of middle middle age right because because you said that last year that you know you're a mid-cycle guy that we're in the, the mid-cycle, not the late stages, which we'll, I'll ask Matt about in a minute, which he thinks we're in a late-cycle economy, right? But so, so you know, what, would, what is it that prevented us from going into a real recession in these three mini-recessions, and what could drive us into a recession? So every time central banks responded. Right. Aggressively. Aggressively. And they cut rates globally. Right. Uh, and all in 12, 16... And, uh, and right now they're in the third one. And there's some signs that it's starting to help the economy a little bit. Uh, and so I think the economy will pick up in 2020. No, you do. It doesn't matter if you're, you're talking about a pickup. Right. In, and, in 2020, and, and, 2.5% GDP growth. Right. And it makes a big difference. Uh, we've had about 2% growth. If, right. if, if growth is 2, which is, is fine, uh, but the cyclical flavor of the economy won't be very strong. If growth is 2.5%, then there's a chance that earnings can do better uh, than under a 2% regime, sort of obviously. And that was one of the interesting things uh, over the last year is we've had these extremely strong equity markets, yes. but earnings didn't really grow for the right. S&P 500. So, so we've had multiple expansion? We've had multiple expansion, uh-huh. and that's, I think, really reflective of real interest rates coming down. Right. I know you invest in individual stocks, but you know, what's your read on on the U.S. market? Well, I think as a whole, um, the market doesn't feel cheap to us. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we are trading at the highest multiple of trailing peak earnings we have this cycle um, and at a higher valuation than in 2007. So um, the market's valuation in aggregate uh, is not cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, beneath the surface, the fact that certain sectors have underperformed uh, means that there is something to do here and there. There are right. pockets of opportunity, uh, but I would not describe this as a cheap market. And in fact, one of the challenges for American savers is that no matter what asset class you're looking at in America, the expected returns are low going forward. So by this process of reflexing easing, mm-hmm. reflexive easing, every time we've had these cyclical slowdowns, the central bank has succeeded in bringing down the potential return of financial assets. Right. 
And, and that is not necessarily a, a, an enticing recipe uh, for investors. Except I look at the returns of financial assets in the U.S., for instance, in 2019, uh, and, uh, I mean, they're pretty darn good. The problem is they're in the rear vision mirror. And because earnings right. didn't grow, all of that return meant multiple expansion. That means lower prospective returns. And in the bond market, the capital gains you've seen there m meant that we're exiting 2019 with lower interest rates than uh, where we right. were a year or so ago, and so lower prospective returns. And so the good returns we've experienced um, presents a very different exposure for the future. You travel all over the country on a regular basis, and I, you have a list of the, of the cities that are doing well, and that list seems to keep expanding, Ed. So what, what's that telling you about the you know, underlying health of business in the U.S.? So I have 93 cities I put on this list. It's, it's really not expanding anymore because I'm not sure there are any more cities <laughs> Any more cities there. to cover. Right. Towns <laughs> the, are next. Right. <laughs> but, uh, so I just added Saratoga Springs. Uh, House you, prices are up 29%. Uh -huh. The unemployment rate is 3.3%. And I took Chicago off because uh, people, I was out there recently. People told me it wasn't doing that well. Mm -hmm. uh, but I am struck, Consuelo, by how many places I visit that are booming. Right. But not just doing well. You know, say Boston, or obviously San Francisco. Right, Denver, Austin, those are the ones that come to mind. But, I mean, like middle America cities are doing really well. And right. <laughs> say Columbus, Ohio. Uh-huh. Uh, I think they have a school there <laughs> with a football team. It's a state capital. Uh, but the economy has changed a lot. And what's driving these local economies, as we've talked about, yes. is technology, health care, higher education, uh, are the things that are you know, making these places go. Right. And uh, entertainment's a big force, and that's not what it used to be like. And, you know, Ed, Ed's been talking about, uh, has talked about the markets climbing a wall of worry. So what's the wall of worry in the U.S.? And, and again, I'm, you invest in, in companies. So the, com the cities that Ed's talking about, the companies must be doing well, at least in those cities. So what, what are the companies telling you that, that you're invested in that are based in the U.S., for instance? So like the uh, very high levels of employment and the low right. levels of unemployment, we've also seen a, a, a fairly elevated level of earnings at the company level. And if you look at the S&P 500, we're, you know, we've, you know, we're a decade high in, in the earnings power. So I, I guess one of the challenges we have as an investor is I, I, I remember days earlier in the decade where we didn't see that vibrancy in a lot mm -hmm. of cities, but that was actually a time of opportunity right. for investors because assets were priced more cheaply. A lot of good things that can happen have happened. You know, unemployment went from 10 to 3.5%. S&P 500 earnings went from depressed levels to nearly twice the prior cycle peak. So that's in the rear vision mirror. Mm -hmm. Asset multiples went up, not down. And, and you know, what's interesting to me is here we are uh, in a... In a economic environment that Ed has described as vibrant, yet the Fed has eased. Mm -hmm. you know, so how far are we from the normal policy backdrop? You would have thought, if I just told you objectively we have around 2% growth and 2% inflation, right. that interest rates would be close to 4%, Yes. if you knew nothing else. Yet they're around 1.5%. You would have thought if we had a 50-year low uh, in unemployment rates at 3.5%, that the budget might be in surplus, yet we have a 4.5% plus deficit. Uh, and so I think to myself, how healthy would this economy look if we had normal interest rates and a balanced budget? Mm -hmm. It wouldn't look that healthy. And so to what extent is the health of the economy today a reflection of this cumulative policy stimulus? And debt. 
which is a major concern of yours. I mean, we've had, we're seeing record levels of government debt and record levels of corporate debt. When is the piper going to have to be paid? I mean, how much of a risk is that? Well, so in the short term, the lower level of interest rate means that the burden of that debt is easier to manage. And the households uh, have improved their balance sheets uh, over the last decade. Mm -hmm. And that and lower interest rates have meant that the debt burden doesn't look too bad there. But it's still pretty high relative to historical standards if you just look at the level of debt relative to income. Where we've seen the real debt growth this cycle has been, as you said correctly, in the government sector uh, and in the corporate sector. Now, how that comes home to roost, we'll have to wait and see. But one of the things that um, sits in the back of my mind uh, is is this um, turning point potentially that you know we, we saw the passing, the untimely passing of Paul Volcker this right. year. Uh, you know, I think we'd, we'd all agree that he's uh, done a tremendous service uh, to the United States in stamping out inflation. Um, and you know, I, I worry a little at this moment where we have wide fiscal deficits um, that and we have very low real interest rates despite economic vibrancy, that we, we may be at a bit of an afterburns type moment here. And explain what that means. Well, he so was a Fed chairman, th- but what's yeah, the moment? There was a reluctance uh, to uh, normalize monetary policy despite a healthy economic backdrop. Right. and that Reluctance also, to raise interest rates and right. And so mm-hmm. when you had Slow big fiscal down. deficits in the late 60s and current account deficits and, and, and real interest rates weren't sufficiently high, we ended up having currency crisis. That was the breakdown of the Bretton Woods Agreement and a decade of stagflation. And so, you know, a question that's weighing on me right now is, are are we toying with uh, a more stagflationary possibility as we look out a few years? If we let the economy run hot, if we let inflation run above uh, where we've targeted because we're thinking about averaging inflation, uh, at what point do we cross an invisible line in the sand where expectations become unstable? There's no sign of that today, mm-hmm. um, but these are the things that we worry about as we think looking out three to five to seven years into the future. Ed, uh, I, I quoted you saying, you know, the markets climb a wall of worry. It's a cliche, but and, and I know in other programs you've told us that you're a worrier. Um, so what, what, what's the wall of worry that you're climbing in, in being, you know, I mean, pretty upbeat about the economic prospects? So uh, the things that people worry about first is that this expansion is going on so long and that's the primal instinct. Then I think the political backdrop uh, is really troubling people. It's very unsettling. Uh, And then the situation with China uh, is troubling. And then you have uh, climate change. Right. Capitalism is under attack. I mean, I can I need to go home. It's so but what are you worried about? I mean, that's the because you're so, pretty you're seeing pretty upbeat. So I, I guess uh, tying everything we've talked about so far, uh, stagflation, for example, I think uh, the biggest risk is that inflation picks up. Right. And with that, interest rates go up and uh, debt problems become you know more acute, whether it was stagflation or not. But that's that would be. Uh, you know, maybe the top of the list. I also worry. How likely is that? Do you think? I mean, at the moment, uh, you mentioned five or seven years. I, I can't look out more than about six weeks. <laughs> but uh, uh, at the moment, it doesn't look like inflation is there. Right. Uh, but I've had two very intense conversations in the past two days with people that said inflation is going to be the topic of of this decade. You know, this is the my last of show. Of the 2020s. Yeah, this is my last show with you in this decade. Right. The next one will be in the next decade. Uh, but, you know, as, as much as I try to see it, I don't see it. Speaking of inflation, I mean, one of your 
primary missions at First Eagle is to preserve the purchasing power of your investors uh, and and obviously have that it appreciate as well and protect against the permanent impairment of capital, which I'm you know, quoting you from many years of interviewing you, Matt. How are you doing that? So firstly, um, what, if you were to sit out in cash right now, uh, you wouldn't protect your purchasing power necessarily, right. especially not after taxes, you'd have a negative real return. And so you have this paradox that we're in, even late in the cycle when you expect to have a higher interest rates that you can't sit it out. Um, and so for us, if you look at our portfolios, the um, approach that we take to preserving capital in real terms is the selective ownership of businesses that we think are stable in their asset value or um, in their market position that act more like real assets over the long term. They'll move up and down uh, with with their own business cycles. But I think if you own something that can maintain its market position and you buy it at the right price, you have the hope of a real return. But recognizing that we are invested in a lot of equities late uh, in the business cycle, mm-hmm. uh, and and with all of these other questions that we've raised, we do want a potential hedge in the portfolio, and uh, we like gold. Uh, we, you know, we think gold is something that that can't be printed uh, in this moment this year in markets where uh, real interest rates came down. Gold has actually performed pretty well. We don't have a near-term directional view on gold. If the economy accelerates, like Ed is suggesting, it could be tough for gold. Right. Um, if the European Central Banks were to start reselling their gold, it could be tough for gold. But as we look out into the medium term, uh, we can't find a, a better potential hedge as we've tried to look at all of the, um, the, the universe of opportunities that are out there as potential hedge. So we think gold is an important part of the portfolio. And incidentally, if, if you had a problem with stagflation at some point in the future, gold is one asset that performed exceptionally well in the 1970s. Interesting. Uh, one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. Ed, I'm going to turn to you. You were a, a new economy pick a year ago, Salesforce, which has done extremely well. What would your one investment for long-term diversified portfolio be this year? So we have 150 analysts in our research department. And I listen to these people every morning and I think about your question. And I like FIS, it's a payment system. Uh, They're growing like crazy, like 20% a year. And uh, it's not exactly like Salesforce. Uh, It's a little more old economy. Mm Uh, but that, that would be my pick today. If you let me have two, I might sneak Apple in there. But uh, with my friend Matt here, it's, it's very expensive, <laughs> or it's, at least it's going up a lot. <laughs> right. And, and Matt, you had a portfolio of stocks. Um, I think, you know, Oracle and, Oracle and Colgate and Weyerhaeuser and, and, and ExxonMobil last year. So yeah. what would you have us own this year? No, look, I think if you look at an Exxon uh, or a Colgate, Uh, or an Oracle, I think they're all still sound investments today. Mm -hmm. They're all still substantial positions for us. Exxon has a 5% dividend yield, certainly out of favor right now, but they're positioning themselves well for the long term uh, in the markets in which they're in. Uh, Colgate uh, has nearly a 5% free cash flow yield and more than 40% market share globally of the toothpaste market. Its revenues have been depressed because it's in a lot of end economies that have low uh, exchange rates versus the dollar. But if the dollar weak uh, strength were to uh, moderate at some point. I think Colgate's a good real asset, long-term and stable business. And then Oracle, um, it hasn't been as exciting as some of the other tech stocks, right. but they are transitioning to the cloud. Um, they are dominant in high-end relational databases and they're distributing most of the cash flow to the shareholders. So I think they're all sound investments still today. All right. So we're going to leave it there. And Matt McLennan and Ed Hyman, thank you for this 
edition of Wealth Track, and we are going to stay here, and we are going to do another edition of Wealth Track focused on overseas markets and the global market. Thank you very much. Thank you. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is intended to give you a boost of optimism as we start a new year. It is read more from less, the surprising story of how we learn to prosper using fewer resources and what happens next by Andrew McAfee. McAfee is the co-founder and co-director of the Initiative on the Digital Economy and a principal research scientist at the MIT Sloan School of Management, where he studies how digital technologies are changing the world. His thesis is that economic growth driven by the combination of capitalism and technology has not only lifted living standards and improved the quality of life around the world, but it is also good for the environment. As we grow and innovate, it turns out we consume less. Case in point, Americans now consume less steel, aluminum, copper, fertilizer, water, timber, and paper than in previous years, even as our GDP has soared and agricultural production has increased dramatically. The U.S. accounts for 25% of the world's economic output, but less than 1% of its ocean trash, whereas China, with 15% of the world's GDP, is responsible for about 28% of ocean pollution. In this age of high anxiety about climate change and draconian predictions about the end of the world, McAfee points out concrete examples and provides realistic hopes that the combination of technological innovation, free enterprise, public awareness, and government incentives can solve our biggest challenges. Well, next week in part two of our special 2020 outlook, Ed Hyman and Matt McLennan share their expectations for global economies and markets. In this week's extra feature on WealthTrack.com, they give us their book recommendations for the new year. For those of you on social media, feel free to like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for watching. We wish you a Merry Christmas holiday, a happy start to Hanukkah, and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.